We've been doing a series on the book of Acts. We're just doing a review of the uh, first church. And I think that like, when we look at the new year that's ahead of us, I think it's easy for us as pastors and leaders to, to lay out vision about us, what we want to do as a church. And I think that uh, when we look back and we get reoriented to the first church, we can really see the priorities of Christ and the kingdom in the first book of in the first book, really, of the church, and that's the book of Acts. And so we went through last uh, last week, Acts chapter 3, when Peter and John are on their way to prayer, and they had a scheduled prayer time. And as they're, they're on their way up, they meet this lame man who is lame from birth at the gate, beautiful. And as they're there, uh, they look at him, he looks at him, at them, and he, they pull him up and they heal him. And it's, this, is, this is a direct... Um, Fulfillment of prophecy in the book of Isaiah that the lame will walk again. And um, the end of the chapter ends uh, in this incredible revival that's happening in the temple. But Acts chapter 4, and if you're reading along with us, um, Acts chapter 4, you're going to notice that in Acts chapter 4, they get in trouble. The, the authorities start, they, really, they realize that they're, gonna, they're starting to lose control. And this is what the flesh does, and this is what religion always does. When God is on the move, in your life, then we, we start feeling we're losing control, right? We start feeling that we're losing control. I'm losing control. I can't control this. Control is not just people that, have str- that struggle with anger and other mental issues. Control is something that's part of the human psyche that all of us deal with. We want to control because we sense that, we sense that security in control. And so they're losing control. They call the, They arrest the apostles. They arrest the apostles. I mean, the whole thing is just so comical to look at. They arrest the apostles. They pull them in with the, with the lame guy. The lame guy's in trouble too. They pull him into court and they're like, what's going on here? By what name are you doing? What, by what? By, by, they ask two questions. By what power and by what name are you doing these miracles in? By what authority? And they say, well, by the name of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, you crucified. <laughs> by whom you crucified. I just love, look at Peter's God has healed Peter from a lot of guilt because Peter's the one who denied Christ, right? And so couldn't Peter be one of those guys that is guilty of crucifying Christ? But he's actually pointing at them. You crucified him, whom you crucified. And he was, and you rejected him as a cornerstone. You guys, by that name, I'm, we are doing this healing. And so the authorities have no way to lay any charge against him because you, because you can't lay charge against the miraculous grace of God in people's lives. You can't accuse that. You know, when you're walking in grace, and it says in Acts chapter 4, later on in verse 33, that uh, they're released from, they're, they're released from, um, from the authorities, and they go out, and it says in verse 33, and great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. It's one of my favorite verses in the book of Acts. Great grace. It's like mega grace is upon. I mean, if we were to rethink our church name, maybe we could just call it mega grace. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's a mega grace church. I mean, it's like Megatron or something like that. But like mega grace was upon them. Have you ever sensed the incredible amount of grace on your life? Now, grace is the unmerited favor of God. It means that there's favor on your life that you could never, ever, ever achieve. It means that you're experiencing something that you could never qualify for, right? You ever look at your life? You ever look at your wife or your husband? I hope you look at your husband. And 
I know my wife looks up her husband and says, thank the Lord for such a great man. Right, honey? <laughs> I like her to say that every day. Honey, can you tell me that again? And we look at and we look at the great grace of God in our life and we say, that's incredible. I could have never, ever deserved this kind of life. And when we think about the great, the mega grace, the grace upon grace in John chapter one, it says that grace and truth came um, with Christ. Right. It's about grace upon grace. And it gives the Kenneth Weiss in his commentary gives this illustration that it's like wave upon wave. If you've been at the beach. You're sitting there and wave, wave upon, grace upon grace. And it's continually washing us, washing us like the sand of the beach. Grace upon grace. We've been graced out. And this is great grace on the church. And that's what I think really the message, the, the, the primary message of the New Testament is not self-improvement. It's not psychological. It, it is nothing else. It's not, it's not humanitarian. It's not political. It is great, the message of the grace of the transforming grace of the transforming power of the grace of God. Great grace is upon them all. Later on, we read in that environment of grace, there's no judging going on. There's no there's no comparing. There's no guilt. There's no programs. There's not you know, the, we don't see the first church trying to engage volunteers. Come on, let's get well, you see people. In the environment of grace, it produces um, generosity. When we talked about generosity, we weren't talking about generosity from the perspective. When you hear that word in the church environment, you're, a lot of times people are waiting for the big ask, the next big ask. I would say our church here is very generous with their time, their money, their, their, uh, with your, with your, with your um, availability to help. I mean... There's no way that we could do half of what we're doing without the generosity. Because this is an environment of grace here. This is not an environment where people are judged or it's like, hey, how'd your week go? Uh, You're on probation. Nobody is on probation. Why? Because we've been qualified by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And what happens in that environment? Barnabas comes up. He's, He's a businessman. He's from Cyprus. He's a Levite, and his name um, means the son of consolation, which means the son of Parakletos, which means it's the same word that is used for the Holy Spirit. This was a man that had a pastor's heart. Okay. Now, when I talk to, when I look at Christianity in the woodlands, when I look at Christianity in Houston, you know what I see? We need pastors. We need people to come alongside of people and not looking to build this, this huge thing for themselves. We just need people, and I've talked to Michael about this. And, and a lot of you, we need people in Matthew chapter nine, when it says that Jesus looked out and saw the sheep without a shepherd. You know what that was? He said, pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers. You know what that call is? It's not a call necessary for missionaries, although it is missional. It's a call for pastors because he saw the He saw the shepherd. He saw the flock without a shepherd. You know, we need people that have this attitude like. Like Barnabas. Okay, so we're going to look at Barnabas later on in the book of Acts, but I love this guy. He is the guy who, I mean, I, I don't want to get into it. This guy is one of my heroes in the book of Acts. And so he, he sells land and he brings it to the, and Acts chapter 4 ends with Barnabas bringing the money that he had just sold all this land for to the church, to this brand new church. Acts chapter 5. And so you see this incredible move of God, great grace upon them all. You see the Lord moving. You see people being added to the church. And then Acts chapter five, verse one ends with this 
uh, begins, the first verse, chapter 5, verse 1, begins with this word, but, but. And this is a chapter that is probably not a very popular chapter that um, I think people like to talk about in the book of Acts. It would be very easy to skip over this chapter and say, oh, look at chapter 6, you know. But I want to look at this for a couple minutes because I think it addresses a few things that are very important for us. When we look at Acts chapter 4, we ask, we ask ourselves, and then we look at Acts chapter 5, we ask ourselves a question. How did the church get from edification and generosity in chapter 4 to the hypocrisy that we see in Acts chapter 5? People, and the answer to that is, is that, is that people, you and I, people struggle with how to build themselves up so their soul structure can be healthy. We, we struggle in how to build ourselves up. We really do. 1984, um, I was in a Bible college in Western Massachusetts. And my pastor uh, preached a message on soul structures. And I have that booklet. And if you want to read it, I can give it to you. It's out of print, but I have the digital copy. And it's called Soul Structures. And it talks about four soul structures that um, most people can identify with one of those four structures. When we talk about a soul structure, um, we look at it like this, that a soul structure is, it's like a house. Have you ever seen a house being built? Um, I live in a neighborhood, it's an oil and gas neighborhood, and you just see these waves of just building and then everything's for sale, and then building, and it's usually with the gas market. You can watch houses build. And there's no found, there's no basements here in Texas, which I think is cool. So there's a lot of problems you guys aren't dealing, we're not dealing with with basements. You just don't want to have a basement. You're not dealing with leaky basements. But you can see houses just go, you can just see them go straight up. You can see a, you can see a slab and then the found, it just goes right up. And the structure of our soul is so important. I just want to talk to you guys about this this morning for a few minutes that your soul structure is where you live, okay? It's where you are. It's it's you live in the structure of your soul and the condition of that structure is going to be the condition of your mind, it's going to be the condition of your emotions, it's going to be the condition of how we relate to our kids and how our kids relate to us. As a teenager, we need to have a proper soul structure because how do we get a, what is the soul structure built from? Well, our soul has a value system. A value system. It means that I value this is important. And by the way, if you ever wonder what you truly value in your life, look at how much time you, where you spend your time. Where am I spending my time? And it's a, my wife and I are just kind of, kind of just assessing everything. And I was sharing with this, I think, with someone this morning before service. And we're looking at just kind of minimalizing and simplifying because I think that where we spend our time is really going to be where our treasure is, okay? Where I'm spending my time. And our value system is going to either be natural, and I have a whole message here prepared, and I hope I get to it, but um, it's funny, because when you come to preach, you know, you're studying all week, you're praying, you're preparing, you get like all these books, all these notes and everything, ask the... Ask the Johnsons because I'm uploading my notes. And then I, I really never, just sometimes I never even get to it. Because you get to the room and you can just discern where people are at in the room. And it's like, okay, the pe- you know, people need something else. And it's like, 
that was a good message a day ago for people, but right now we are in the you know the, in the real time, you know, like um, on the fly. Warfare changes by the minute, and so um, we have to be uh, we have to be adaptable. And so um, our value system can be eternal. It means that I'm building my soul on eternal decisions, meaning that there are some things that are I don't see. There are things that I don't see. Maybe physically that I don't um, that I don't have the affirmation of. Uh, maybe I don't have um, people validating me in certain things. But I, there are things in my life that are that are eternally valuable, but I don't see them. And for me, number one, that's the Word of God. It's the Word. It's, like, it's the Word of God. Like the Bible for me is is the foundation of my faith. It's Romans chapter ten verse seventeen. Is that without faith, like without the Word, there is no faith. And if there's no faith, and I can't generate faith in my emotions. I mean, I can, I can whoop it up, you know, and get everybody excited. But then after that, it's like, where's my sustenance and where's my foundation? So our value system, when it's built on eternal things, like there's a heaven. I want to, I'm just preparing in my heart a series about heaven and hell. You know, like how was the last time, when's the last time we heard a message about hell? I mean, we, we believe in hell, right? I believe in hell. <laughs> Something the Bible talks about it. Our glorious hope in heaven. Eternal value system. That there is a time where we will face Christ and there will be rewards for us. For those things that you and I did by faith in our life, motivated by love. And then there's also a natural value system, which is like putting my time and my energy and all of my effort into something that's just going to die when I die. Like I think Billy said it this week, a hundred years from now, nobody's going to know who you and I are unless we do some incredible thing for the country. Like, what is my value system? What is my value system? And that is for me to live as Christ and for my flesh to die as gain. That's my value system. I mean, spending time hanging out with, with Kyle during the week or, or different people, just spending pouring, people, pouring time, having people pouring into my life. And that's why I think this weekend with Pastor Chevelli is going to be such a valuable time. And so our soul is made up of six parts. Now, some of you that have been around for a while uh, have heard it taught. There's five parts of the soul, right? I think there's a sixth part, the number of six. Number six is the number of man, and I think it works with soul. But there's five parts that we've generally been taught in the soul. Do you know what the five parts of the soul are? Anybody know it? Just throw, throw a couple parts out there for me. Just mind, the mentality, the volition, the will, what else? What else is that? Emotions. What's the third one? Identity, right? Identity, self-image. And what's the fifth one? My Eduardo. What's the fifth one? Conscience, right? Conscience. With my systems and my values and what I judge is true and right. And those are five. But I think there's a sixth part of our soul. I think it's called intuition. Meaning that I have this sense of like, I don't know why, but I... I think it's, and this is what I was thinking about this year. I don't know why, but I think it's going to be a great year for all of us as a church. I don't know why. I can't point to reasons. Can't say the stock market's up and we're going to do good. But I can just, I have this, and I think that when you and I walk, and when our soul, when our soul, are you following me? Like, is this too complex? When your soul, and I think Watchman Nee talks about this, when your soul is surrendered to the Holy Spirit and to the Word of God, when it's surrendered, then your soul is functioning under the government, a spiritual government, 
And that means you're a spiritual person. When someone says spirit, you're a spiritual person, it doesn't necessarily mean, because spirituality is not personality, right? I can be a humble personality, but be very carnal. I can walk around with my hands folded, subdued, self-deprecating. I'd be very, very arrogant person, be very proud. Spirituality is not personality. Spirituality is when my soul, everything about me is surrendered to the Holy Spirit. That means I can be boisterous, I can be loud, I can be confident, and also be a very spiritual person. Does that make sense? If I'm surrendered to the cross and I'm surrendered to the Holy Spirit, then every part of my soul, the six parts of my soul, and this is just Chris Moore saying this, this is not thus saith the Lord, but I think my intuition, my intuition, my feeling about the future or the way things are going becomes discernment. Instead of it living in, it, so that intuition becomes discernment. So just something for you to think about. So this is our soul structure. These, like my mind, my thought life, my emotions, the way I feel. We're emotional people. And, and that's okay to be emotional. I think in some stoic cultures that emotion is deemed as a bad thing. Well, when your emotions are, being, are under the government of the Word of God and the, through the Holy Spirit, you have, you have what does Paul call it? I mean, King James, he called it bowels of mercy, right? Bowels, you know, like these comfort. And so when our soul is surrendered to the cross and to the Holy Spirit, then we're being, um, our soul structure becomes healthy. You know, we're living in this house. You know, after Harvey, many of you guys remember this, after Harvey, Hundreds of thousands of homes in the, in the Houston area were condemned to this day. I don't know where they're at, but unlivable because bacteria and mold and fungi got inside the house, black mold. People can't live there today. Beautiful homes, you know. Beautiful homes downtown. Just unlivable because the condition, the structure of the house is compromised because of fungi and because of, because of, um, of unhealthiness. This booklet, um, The Structure of the Soul, or Soul Structures, um, pastor writes this, a man is the content of his soul. Does that sound familiar? C.S. Lewis said something like that too, didn't he? He said, we are not first a body, we are a soul. And he writes this, a man is the content of his soul. Think about this. Okay, you're the content of your emotions, you're the content of your mind, you're the content of your decisions, you're the content of your your intuition, You're, you're the content of your norms and standards and your conscience, we, a man is the content of his soul. We will communicate the content of our soul. So if my soul is filled with the word of promise, if my soul is filled with Christ, if my soul is filled with prayer and worship, that's what I'm going to communicate to my spouse. If it's not, I'm going to... Uh, and we have to be careful because we get when we get tired, when we get vulnerable, when we get hurt, when we get wounded, or we like Michael saying, we get back from work physical, we're physically tired. You know, we have to really lean on the Holy Spirit because we're going to communicate the content of our souls. And if my soul, he goes on to say, is not built up in the Lord, that communicate that communication is neither productive nor filled with the right content. And, it, and here's the point I want to make: it's not edifying. It's not edifying. So when we look at Acts chapter 4, let's go back to Acts 4, we see the environment of grace, we see mega grace on people, we see generosity happening that was not solicited, we see this happening, and then in Acts chapter 5, verse 1, it says, but, and it talks about two people, Ananias and Sapphira, and 
when we look at these people, we see the word but. And I think that if you're, I think some of us can be fearful and look at Acts chapter 5 and say, I'm Ananias and I'm Sapphira. And so I would disagree with that. My personal opinion here is that Ananias and Sapphira probably did not even know the Lord. They didn't even know Christ. They were part of this, like Mike was saying, part of these tears that are being pulled in together into, into the, the work of God. People were surrounding this exciting new thing that was happening in Jerusalem. And this man, Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, they sell a piece of land. And they, they're looking at this generosity. They're looking at this move of God. They're looking at this incredible thing of like, wow. And they want to in some way counterfeit this. And Acts chapter 5 is not about not giving something to the church. Okay? Acts chapter 5, you see, you see Ananias is fire. They come, they give the impression that they sold, they sold a possession and they're laying it at the apostles' feet. They're wanting to, they want to project an image to everybody else that they're also very sacrificial and very generous. And they're caught in the lie and they wind up dead. They wind up dead. This is a very... Very like severe situation. I mean, move of God and then people are dying. And like, how do you reconcile that? And so Ananias and Sapphira, they do not get struck dead by God because they kept something back from the church. It's the wrong way to interpret Acts chapter 5. What had happened was, is that God is so zealous and so jealous over his church and the purity of the church that he is not allowing any kind of infection or any kind of fake, hypocritical portrayal of something that's not pure like generosity. And God doesn't want that. God doesn't want that. And so they die. They wind up dead. And why does this happen? And how do they go from Acts chapter 4 to Acts chapter 5? I would like to say that it's because Ananias and Sapphira did not understand that... Got quieted real quick. Ananias and Sapphira didn't understand their soul structure, and they didn't understand because if we don't understand a proper soul structure, we're going to be leaning on people for our spirituality. We're going to be needing. We're going to be leaning on. I mean, there's a time in our life when we need people to build us up, but then there's a time also when God wants to build us up. So we need to learn how to build ourselves up, and and so there's. Um, I think that there's. Well, we read in this booklet four different kinds of soul structures. And I think that, you know, every one of us in this room can identify with one or more of these soul structures. And so I want to kind of quickly go over these. <coughs> Just relate to the, how <clears throat> this relates to Ananias and Sapphira <clears throat> in Acts chapter 5. So when we're not building ourselves up, and I want us to first of all look at Jude chapter 1 verse 20 and verse 21. Keep your finger in that page in your Bible, and um, I'm going to go back to it later, but I'm going to read it quickly to you now. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. You know what that word keep means? It means guard. It means guard. Just guard your soul that you're functioning in the love of God, that God loves you, as we were singing earlier, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Our soul structure, if it's... If it's not, if we're not keeping ourselves in the love of God, if we're not keeping ourselves looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of looking for judgment, then we're going to have a soul structure that is dysfunctional. And it's going to be one of either one of these four. Number one, 
uh, a dysfunctional soul structure is a subjective emotional structure. Sometimes I see people making decisions based on circumstances in their life. Like, and it's just an emotion. A situation comes and they respond to it emotionally. We all can do that. But this person will continually make a subjective or emotional um, decision in their life based on how they feel. Well, I don't feel this way or I don't feel that way. Just remember that emotions cannot think. Your emotions cannot think. Your emotions cannot properly um, discern what's going on. I may feel really bad about something, but it may be something very good that's happening in my life. For example, someone comes up to you and just blesses you with something that, you, you know, just graces you out, just gives you a gift of grace. And you may feel bad about yourself. You may feel, I don't deserve that. And you may have some weird feelings about that. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It just means that your emotions have not been educated yet in the grace of God. And so your emotions cannot think. Emotions will only be able to respond. Emotions just respond to the content of your thinking. Does that make sense? If I'm thinking healthy thoughts with God, and that's why we're going to be in the Word. I mean, that's... Our Bible has to be open. It's like we need to be like in the word of God. And like if you're not if you're just if you're new and, and you're just reading the Bible for the first time and you're not understanding a lot, it's OK. Just take one thing that you're getting out of it and just take it home and say, OK, I read this. And so when the word of God begins to fill your mind, then our soul structure goes from subjective thinking. Subjective means everything's based on me and the way I feel about things to objectivity. And it doesn't matter how I feel about something. Do you always, I mean, when you come, when you wake up in the morning, Sunday mornings, you always feel like you want to go to church? Huh? My motion, the, the, the microphone's gotten emotional. I mean, do you always feel like, do you feel like you want to go to church all the time? You know? Um, maybe not. I don't know. But, we think with God about it, like I need to be there and I need to be encouraged and I need to be built up in the fellowship. The second, and so the, the, the Corinthian church, the, the Corinthian church had an emotional problem as a church. They were emotional. They were accusing Paul in 2 Corinthians 6. They were saying, Paul, you're causing us emotional. This is kind of like an airy sound. But Paul was saying, the Corinthians were saying to Paul, Paul, you're causing us emotional problems. And Paul was saying, look, you guys are so off. You guys are so subjective about me and my ministry that I'm loving you guys. And I want to pour out. I want to pour out on you guys. But you have no capacity for it because you're living in your emotions. The second dysfunctional soul structure is just self-love. And this is 2 Timothy 3, 2. Just someone that is just every decision that they make in their life is based on on a value system that's based on self-interest. How can I benefit from this? How can I benefit? How can I walk out of this circumstance and profit from this? And so when God speaks to them and there's conviction that comes in through the word, then that what happens is that they just reject it. They just say, no, because I'm in love. I love myself too much. Number three, the third dysfunctional self-structure is self-righteousness. You know, maybe I don't have a problem with self-love, but maybe I have a problem with self-righteousness. And this is Romans 10, verse 3. It means that, it means that, um, thanks. It, it, may, it, it means this. It just means, self-righteousness means like, um, I'm all about natural human goodness. Uh, I can be judgmental and 
I have to go around and establish my own righteousness because I'm overcompensating in my life for something else. Self-righteousness is, is rejected because the righteousness that comes by faith means that I am not righteous today because I've been out doing things all week for God. It may mean that I may have had a really bad week, but you know something? God still loves me, and there, that never changes because the cross is constant. There's never a change towards us. And then the fourth... Um, the fourth kind of dysfunctional soul structure is pride. And this is really bad. This is 1 John 2, verse 17. It's called the pride of life. I think we have this in America. Like, this is my life, and I'm going to do what I want to do with my life, and no one's going to touch that. No one's going to, like, even address that. No one's going to, you know, you do what you think is right, but I'm going to do what I think is right in my life because it's my life. This is a dangerous form of building your soul in this kind of thinking because like even though no one can tell you what to do and no, we really uh, as individuals we have privacy with God but that does not give us the okay to live in pride in our ego um, pride is what motivated Ananias and Sapphira and this is where I want to get into the second thing here and that is is that pride always leads to presumption presumption you know what that word presumption means? It means that uh, I think I, I think I'm going to do this, and I'm just going to pr- uh, presume in my own natural thinking that this is okay, and that that uh, this is the way I think it should go. Presumption in Psalm 19 verses 12 and 13. Let me read these verses to you. David speaks of two types of sin, and he talks about hidden fault and presumptuous sin. And this is what he writes. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep your servant, David said, from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of the great transgression. When you think of sin and you think of like bad sins and not so bad sins, what do you think is the worst sin? I mean, okay, murdering someone, adultery. um, I don't know. You can think of lots of different kinds of sin. But according to David here, in David's eyes, the greatest sin that he could commit before God was just presumption. This was like, this meant that he had, and, and presumption, by the way, is it's, it's, the end, it's, the, it's the end result of a process of familiarity. Presumption is what Ananias and Sapphira had. They walked into this group of people and they only saw flesh and blood. They only saw uh, just something exciting that was going on. And but before we get to that, what, is, what are hidden faults? David talks about, he says, you know, there's hidden faults. These are kind of sins that are like trapdoor sins. It's like I'm walking along my day and then suddenly something blindsides me that I didn't know was coming. And it's like I trip up and I fall flat on my face. It's not something that's necessarily pre-planned in my life. Presumption is like I'm pre-planning this. I mean, it's not a trapdoor sin. It's like, it's on the other side. It's down the road. I can see the door and I'm moving in that direction. And that's what I'm going to do. And no one's going to tell me anything different. That's presumption. And it's always relating. It's always associated with demonic activity. This is like 1 Samuel 15, 23. And I know this might be a little bit heavy teaching today. Just bear with me, okay? 1 Samuel 15. Do you remember what's going on? Saul, a carnal king is functioning outside of his anointing as king. He is not understanding who Samuel, the man of God in his life is, and he's making decisions as a king based on what he thinks is right. And that's, that's presumption. It's like presumption. This is what I think 
is right. And no one's going to teach me otherwise. And so Saul here is, he is told to go and to wipe out the Amalekites. Historically, the Amalekites, and you've heard, I think, um, Jeff's taught on this. The Amalekites are some of the arch enemies of Israel. They would come up and they would attack Israel from behind. Israel's moving, you know, all the women and children in the back with all the, all the vulnerable uh, young uh, of, uh, of the, uh, you know, of the of flocks and of the, of the, of, of um, the uh, animals. And they come in and they attack from behind and they, and they hurt Israel as they're moving along. They, they are like the arch enemy in many ways to Israel. And so Saul, one of his first missions delegated by Samuel, is say, go wipe out the Amalekites. He does, but he keeps the king and he keeps the best of the Amalekites. Because Saul, it's not about obedience with Saul. It's about what he thinks is right. Because obedience sometimes is like, I'm going to do what I think is right. It's not necessarily full obedience. If you're in the military, you're not really asked what your opinion is about what you're doing. You just need to follow orders, right? And I have not been in the military, but I know Mike and Tony have been. And, you know, you're not there to say, hey, well, officer, you know, sir, excuse me. I need to, I want to question your your insight. You're, you're out there because there's information that Samuel has that Saul doesn't have. There's information that God has in spiritual warfare that you and I don't have yet. And so obedience means I'm not doing what I think is right. Obedience means I'm just doing what I'm told. And presumption is like, well, you know what? I don't think I need to fully obey there. I'm going to live in some self-love here and I'm going to live in some emotionalism and I'm just going to do what I think is right. So here's Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Agag represents the flesh. And Agag here uh, is not, he's not killed. And the best of the sheep are not killed because Samuel, uh, Saul thinks, let's keep, the, let's keep the sheep and let's sacrifice them for the Lord. Saul comes, uh, Samuel comes on the scene and says, have you done what God told you to do? Saul's like, yes, and I kept the best for the Lord. Sounds good, doesn't it? That's presumption. Presumption means that I'm presuming something's right, but it's actually not. And, 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 and Saul, Samuel, as you know, the story goes, he said, what's the bleeding of the sheep? What's that bleeding of the sheep? And then it says, in verse 33, I think it's verse 33 or verse 23. It says that, um, 33, Agag, the king, walks in and he's thinking, surely the bitterness of death has passed. Oh, everything's good now. We're all good, right? You know, Agag just kind of walks and this is the guy, this is the main dude that's, that is really moved, that's leading the Amalekites against the Israelites. This is an enemy of God. And so Saul gets deceived and he makes this decision. I think I'm going to do this because I, and I want to have a certain, because Saul was all about appearance. This is what Ananias, were, Ananias and Sapphira were about, appearance. I want people to think good about me. And so Agag walks in, he's kind of walking, waltzing in with his kingly clothes and what does Samuel do? I love Samuel. I mean, this guy is just no nonsense. He grabs the sword, right? And he chops at Agag to pieces. <laughs> it's just like, sorry about the use in the room. But this is like a severe, radical form of obedience. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's just like, does that necessarily have to be that way? Yes, it has to be that way. Presumption is equivalent to surrendering to demonic activity and presumption is the end of a long process of familiarity. I want to wrap this up with this. I think there's, a, there's, a, there's stages of familiarity. Now, when we say familiarity, I think 
generally in our culture and in this world that we live in today, familiarity is a, it's a good word. Like I'm familiar with driving a car, I'm familiar with Shenandoah, familiar with the woodlands, I know where I'm going, I know where HEB is, I'm familiar with all that. But I can be someone that is so acquainted with the word, I can be a person in this church for 30, 40 years and be familiar with the doctrine and familiar with the way of living and be familiar with it to the point where it's, no, where it's no longer something I'm living in. Does that make sense? Familiarity to the point of carelessness. And so in that sense, familiarity is a word that is not used in a good sense here in this setting. I think there's six stages. And, and, the, and the sixth, at the sixth stage, someone, people enter into presumption. And guess what? When you're living in, when you and I are living in presumption, we're deceived and we don't know it. And we just need someone to come up to us and just challenge us. Say, brother, sister, I really, I just, I want to encourage you here, but I want to challenge you because I think you're just missing something. Because the writer of, of, of Proverbs says this, that every man's ways are right in his own eyes, right? You look at your life and say, I'm good. I'm doing good. Okay. Um, sixth stage, I think number it always, familiar, already, careless familiarity always starts with carelessness. It's just unfamiliar, it's like you're on 45, I know the road is straight, just go straight to Houston. You start doing something on your phone, and before you know it, like, you either miss your turn or you're, you're going to hit another car. car. Carelessness is always the first stage of familiarity. It's sentimentality. It means that I'm just kind of like, you know, sentimental, not really... You know, not really taking the situation at hand seriously. The second stage is the breakdown of reverence, sacredness. And I was just thinking, this body is so sacred. People are so sacred. When I prepare, and when you guys know Jeff and the team is preparing for worship and doing doing uh, slides and and, what, and and whatever you do here, setting up chairs or cleaning up. We do it because it's sacred. This is, this is, you are sacred people. You know, the candles are sacred people. When I look at people, I'm not looking at people as like flesh and blood. Because in Ephesians chapter 6, it says that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We're not dealing with people's personalities. We're not dealing with people's dysfunctions. Because when I become careless, then my view of my family, my wife, my husband, or my kids, or my job, it just becomes... It just there's a breakdown of sacredness. I love how Mike talked about his job. Like, you know, for him, it's just a sacred. He's there, and there's just, it's just a sacred thing for him. Does that make sense? Like, there's something sacred about it. God has given this to me. And when I become familiar, I just become, I, I, lack, my, I lack reverence and that sacredness. And everything becomes just about personalities. And guess what? That attacks my value system. I'm no longer looking at things by faith. Or I'm looking at things by sight. Everything becomes sight. You know, walked into a church yesterday, Faith Bible, and I just was like, I was like, Lord, I don't want to walk into this church um, familiar. Does that make sense? These are sacred people. These are your people. They are bought with your blood. Um, you know, they, and, and it's like, you know, my initial idea was just, okay, this is a, this, and okay, it's gonna, this is going to happen. But I didn't want to have that lack of reverence. And when I talked to people, I wanted to think, okay, they're not in my church, but they are God's people. And I want to, I want to treat them in a sacred way. 
Okay, because I don't want to be familiar. The third, third stage is tolerance. It means that, okay, I'm sentimental, I'm careless, and then there's a breakdown of reverence, and I just realize everything's flesh and blood, and then suddenly I'm tolerating things in my life that shouldn't be there. Before, it was a conviction in my life that I didn't, I didn't have it, but now it's not, you know, I, you know, Agag can hang out with us. You know, Agag's okay, you know. Why kill Agag? He's a nice guy, you know. He's a king. He's our captor. He's our, he, he's our resident. And, you know, we begin to tolerate things. And, and the things that we tolerate, tolerate in our life, we bring us into the fourth point, they influence us. They influence. Anything that I tolerate in my life is going to influence me. It's going to influence my decisions. It's going to influence the way I think. It's going to be something that I allow in my life to be present. And it's going to influence me and my family. Does that make sense? I said, what we tolerate, what we allow in our family, in our house... And I tell you, you know, when we talk about one of the strongest, one of the biggest things that in the Old Testament that that um, Rebecca, remember Rebecca steals her father's gods. Remember that? The idols. Okay. I can happen so easily. Like I can bring into my family family idols that have been in my family for generations. And so influence that influences me. And the fifth thing, I'm blinded. It blinds me to discernment. Things I allow in my life and I just tolerate it affects my discernment, and I can no longer, I'm blinded to it. I don't see the way it used to, I used to see it. Does that make sense? And I let, let something into my life, and it begins to affect me, and I don't see the discernment. I don't discern it anymore. And then the sixth thing is, well, is, is deception. I think some, somebody doesn't want me to preach this message. Is deception. I'm just deceived. And when a person's deceived, they don't even know it. And so these are the six stages. And this is what happens with Ananias and Sapphira. They walk into the scene. That's okay. I'm going to be done in a second. They walk into the church and they're like, you know what? I'm gonna, we're going to, we are really, they, they, it's him and his wife. It's him and his wife. And they make this, they make this, you know, and if you're married, maybe you can identify this kind of a conversation. So let's do this. And, you know, we give this impression. And we just want people to think that we're spiritual people too. And God catches that, and he says, I don't want that. I don't want to have this kind of presumption in the midst of a new church. Closing point. Here's the closing point. How do we deal with that? A lot of bad news here today, a lot of negativity about, you know, negative teaching here. But I think we need to look at this and understand this, that how do we have a healthy soul structure? Because when my soul is healthy, I'm not worried about what people think about me in the church. I'm not worried about how I'm feeling. I'm not worried about things that, I'm not worried about control. Because one thing that we learn as a believer as the years go by is that it's, we, we are not in control. And, and, and I think the sooner that we can learn that, the freer that we're going to be. And I want to close with this, is that how do we have really a healthy soul structure? Acts 20 verse 32. It's like another life verse for me. You ever want to guess my password somewhere? Just type in Acts 20, 2032. <laughs> okay. Being recorded and everything. Healthy soul structure, Acts 20, verse 32. Paul says this to his church that he's leaving. He's going to be leaving. He's going to be going away and he's going to die in, in Rome. And he's saying this to the churches in Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 32. These elders that he's, that he's raised up, the churches that he's planted. And he says, I commend you to the word of his grace. To the word of his grace that is able to build you up. You know something? If we're, if we're built up, we have something to give to people. It's called an inheritance. Are you following me? Build yourself up in the grace of God. 
don't live in self-analysis. Don't live in self-awareness. Don't live in self-self. Live in who you are in the word of grace. Digest who you are. Let your identity be cleansed and washed and built up in who you are in Christ. That you are loved by God. That you're a man of God. That you're a woman of God. You know that. You are people of God. When we walk into a situation, when we walk into work, and like, you know, everybody's just a pagan or whatever is going on. We, there's something in our life. It's a spirit that's not from this, not the spirit of the world in John 14. It's the spirit of God that's in us. And the, the demons and, 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 um, and principalities and powers can discern that. Walk in your anointing. And this is something I didn't have time to talk about. But you know what the greatest way to deal with familiarity is? is walk in your anointing. And maybe you don't know what your anointing is. Maybe you don't know what it is yet. Maybe you don't know what your calling is. But you know what an anointing is, right? The presence of God. When you're alone by yourself, you're opening the word or you're listening to a message and you're sensing God commune with you, there's an anointing there. It means there's an authority there. It means that when you and I function to who we are in Christ, there's an anointing, there's an authority, there's a power that Ananias and Sapphira could never give you. You know, if you're a teenager here today, okay? You are anointed by God. God has an amazing plan for you. Walk in that. Walk in that anointing. And when we walk in that anointing, then we, we're building ourselves up and we're living with a healthy soul structure. Amen? Does that make sense? This yeah. is a long message today, but there's a lot that I wanted to, to teach. And so Acts chapter 6 is an exciting, but Acts chapter 5 ends in a great way. There's the fear of the Lord. It means that when I walk into a circumstance, I don't know what God wants. When I walk in here Sunday morning, I'm not like, I got this. I know what everybody needs to hear and like, you know, and I don't walk in like that. I walk in like, you know, God can change this in a minute. Like God could do something different. Um, I don't know where people are at. I, I don't want to like, oh, that's his problem or that's her problem. I want to be so careful about how I talk about other pastors. I mean, I feel so convicted about that. I, I don't want to ever, you know, I don't want to talk about another pastor in such a familiar way. Like, oh, that's just the way he is. And, well, yeah. And guess what? He's broken. He's a vessel, as like Mike was saying, and God chose that vessel. And, and, and I'm so convicted about that. Lord, forgive me for, for being familiar with people, like talking and walking in and saying, oh, that's my opinion about things. This is what I think. Can you imagine me, little, little me, walking into this big church and saying, you know what? That's wrong, and this is wrong, and that's all wrong, and these people are It's like, you know what? It's like, who am I to talk like that, to be so presumptuous? That's just a great transgression. You know what I'm saying? It's like, and that's what... I love this sense. I love this. I'm just going to keep preaching forever here. I'm going to finish. But like, just like, let's not live in that. Let's walk in and say, Lord, surprise me with your grace. You know, that's the sacredness of, you know, and, and let's not live in that presumption. And don't presume things about yourself either. Just say, you know what? God's going to surprise me. God's going to give me things and he's going to bless me in a way that I could never, ever achieve in my own personal life. Amen. Amen. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for...